Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are continuing through the book of Revelation and uh, we're, you know, we spent a number of weeks on the first three chapters of Revelation, spent a lot of time in the seven messages of chapters two and three. Now we're in that next section, which is chapters four and five of the throne room. And this is just one of those great weeks where we have an amazing guest on. So Rob, why don't you go ahead and intro our guest? Are you saying it's a great week because it's not just you and me? We yes, have have I get to look at someone else for the first time in a number of weeks. <laughs> just want to be clear. Yes. We are so pleased to have Dr. Nelson Crable uh, joining us today. Nelson is an ordained minister who served as the president of the Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Indiana for about 12, 13 years. He was president of the Mennonite World Conference from 2015 to 2022. And in the last year, he was a scholar in residence at Bethlehem Bible College in Palestine, where he did some work, including making 10 short films on peace themes related to biblical sites. He received his MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary and a PhD in biblical studies from Union Presbyterian Seminary. He's the co-founder of Bridge Builders Mediation Service in Britain, and his publications are range from a wide variety of uh, articles in Christianity, Christianity Today to his book, Apocalypse and Allegiance, Worship, Politics, and Devotion in the Book of Revelation. He's recently published a new book, Stuck Together, The Hope of Christian Witness in a Polarized World, uh, and his blog, we'll put the link to it in the show notes, features popular-level articles on biblical sites, and he's also been leading tours to the Bible land since 2008. So, Nelson, welcome. Thank you, Rob. It's Vinny. It's good to be with you and with your audience. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's begin. You. We just want to start today by letting um, our audience get a little bit better idea about yourself, your family, how you got to the place where you are, and when it comes to the book of Revelation, especially the end times and even the Middle East. Well, one would gather from your introduction that I'm a Mennonite. Uh, I was <laughs> ra- raised on a, a giveaway. I was trying yeah. to be careful. <laughs> On a Mennonite farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, my wife uh, also was raised in a Mennonite family in uh, Puerto Rico. So she's huh. a bicultural, bilingual person. And um, I got interested in the book of Revelation first when I was a young adult and I was teaching at a high school in San Juan, Puerto Rico, a Christian school. And I was asked to come in the middle of the year to the 10th grade class and teach Bible because mm. the students had misbehaved so much they needed another teacher. <laughs> and I came into the classroom and I said, we're going to study the Bible. The The, the, the mischief is going to be over for a while. Uh, what do you want to study? And a kid in the back row raised his hand and said, the book of Revelation. Nice. You got that kid. And, <laughs> and I knew nothing about Revelation. I said, bring your Bibles. On Monday, we're going to start. Uh, and uh, it got me started studying the book. And amazingly, the kids loved it. Uh, we made a cartoon of Revelation, a big poster cartoon that went the whole way around the top of the room with images of the beasts and the harlot and the thrones. Uh, and it became a lifelong passion. And on some level, I believe the call of God on my my thinking and my ministry. How old were you at that time? Uh, I would have been 25. Okay. Hey, I got a question on that. How from how much had you studied Revelation at that point, or how familiar with it, were you with it? I knew nothing about it. I had not gone to seminary. Uh, I had not uh, paid attention to the book, other than having read in tenth grade 
the late great planet Earth. Okay. By Lindsay. Great, great that, that was our next work. question: was had you had that kind of influence? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. So the sort of the crystal ball reading of Revelation, which I had by that age twenty five already pretty much jettisoned, I think, okay. and uh, was ready for a different way of reading it. Mm. So then, if you could go back in time and like, if you could observe yourself teaching, how much would you? cringe at what you taught then or how much would you redo or how much would you give yourself credit on and say like oh actually like no nah, I, I got some stuff right <laughs> uh i think uh, i would be pleased i based nice. my research uh, at that point on a book by vernard eller called the most revealing book of the bible mm. uh, and he took the historical context seriously but also had a pastoral heart he cared about the mission of the church and bringing those two together, kind of critical, historical, theological reflection, bring that together with a passion for the mission of the church is what I've wanted to do with my life. Hey, can I ask a question? I know we didn't prep you for this one at all, but can you define for us or describe for us what a Mennonite is and the, the kind of the key features of Mennonite? Mennonites were the... Um, you might say the radical left of the Reformation. They were the ones who wanted to follow the pattern of Luther and others, going back to the New Testament, especially. Okay. Uh, trying to reestablish, recover something of the original vision of the early church. And for the Mennonites, that came to include uh, separation of church and state, mm -hmm. not meaning we are anti-state, but that we don't, we're not beholden to the state to decide our theology. And also such things as following Jesus literally about being generous with our financial mm -hmm. means, about living holy lives, about not killing. So we've not wanted to go to war. Uh, I mean, right. who wants to go to war? But right, right. we've often refused. And incidentally, the name Mennonite was not a name that our church chose. That was put to us by our enemies, you know, people who despise these crazy uh, anarchists who would not quite cooperate with the state church. And right. uh, Named after Menno Simmons, right? Menno Simons, yeah, was Simons, an early okay. leader. And uh, he he was one of the few of the major early leaders who was not martyred, did not get killed either by Protestants or Catholics. Mm -hmm. uh, so he survived and died a natural death. And uh, his people that were gathered around him were ridiculed as Mennonites. It was, mm -hmm. a, it was a term of derision. So pacifism is a big part. I don't know if you want to use that term or not. Um, Nonviolent resistance is the term I prefer. A designation I prefer uh, is a key element of of the Mennonite belief system. But you guys are also really strong as peacemakers and peace builders. I mean, a lot of organizations come to you guys for saying, "How do we find reconciliation and peace peacemaking?" And that's true, and that was especially true when I was a young adult. Uh, fairly early on in my ministry, I was my wife and I were in mission work in Western Europe, uh, and. Uh, other denominations came sometimes came to us and said, can you mediate in a conflict? And I had some conflict mediation training 
uh, and then uh, went on to be co-founder of the Bridge Builders Mediation Service that I believe is still going in London. It's, it seemed to mm. go pretty strong for 25 years. Now, I would say the peace, those kind of peacemaking skills are much more broadly owned by denominations and, and mm. far beyond the Christian church. But yeah, Mennonites were among the early practitioners of modern uh, conflict mediation or conflict transformation, as we like to call it. That's great. Hey, so one of the things that we like to do every time we've had a guest on specifically regarding revelation is we ask them to summarize or maybe highlight what do they believe the key issues, themes, the purpose of the book of revelation is maybe in their own context. How do they tend to focus uh, on the reading of the text and the theology? Uh, Vinny, I think it helps to examine the first word of the book, and that's the word apocalypse in Greek. It, it's uh, apokalypsis Jesu Christu, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And apocalypse is the Greek word that means uncovering or unveiling. And John, a Jewish writer who we otherwise, I think, know nothing about, uh, was a prophet and a pastor working in what we call Western Turkey, uh, what then was known as the province of Asia of the Roman Empire. And he wanted to unveil or uncover for his readers or those who would hear his message the spiritual and political realities of his day. And John says he was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God. We take that to mean he was sent there in exile. There was not a church there that he was pastoring. So he's in exile, presumably, writing to seven churches in Asia or Western Turkey. And he's writing with a pastoral heart. He's telling them that even though the Roman Empire, which now controls all of the Mediterranean basin and beyond, even though the Roman Empire looks invincible, mm -hmm. the God of Jesus Christ is still on the throne. Amen. That the control of history, or I might say the destiny of history, is firmly in the hand of God. And Rome was trying to set itself up as eternal, mm -hmm. and the emperors were wanting to be worshipped as gods. Uh, I would expect that Revelation, as we have it, probably came into writing in its current form late in the first century, which would have been during the time of Emperor Domitian. Uh, but what John writes, I believe, his visions, which partly are nightmares <laughs> and, and also are glorious mm -hmm. visions, mm -hmm. this, this mix of, of suffering and, and hope um, was something that John wanted his listeners and his readers to see. He wanted them to have the reality of the evil of the Roman Empire— revealed, along maybe with all the good that empires do, mm. empires have a tendency to turn evil and violent. He wants his readers to see that clearly and also to see the glory of God clearly. Mm -hmm. 
And to, from that to take signals or clear message about where their allegiance is, where do you belong, followers of Jesus? Do you belong to Rome, which John says has become beastly? Mm -hmm. Or do you belong to Jesus, the Lamb, the Lamb mm -hmm. of God, and uh, the new Jerusalem that God is bringing into reality, even mm -hmm. as John speaks, that new Jerusalem is breaking into the world. Uh, that's where you belong, John mm -hmm. says. That's your citizenship, not in Rome, which he, which John dismisses as Babylon. Mm. Wow. Excellent. Now, you contend in your book that Revelation is a primer on how good and evil interact in every generation. So the book of Revelation is just as relevant today then as it was back then? It is. And um, I think we need to read Revelation much like we might read the book of 1 Corinthians. Amen. We go to 1 Corinthians, and we don't say the Apostle Paul here is probably writing about some event happening in Washington, D.C. today <laughs> or in my... No, Paul is writing about Corinth. He's mm -hmm. writing about the pressures of Christians living in a pagan commercial environment, mm -hmm. whether or not to go into the temples of the gods, because that's where your guild meets. So Paul is dealing with first century realities. And in order for us to make sense of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, we need some understanding of the context that Paul is writing into. And then the Spirit of God nudges us and nudges the church as we discern this book together to say, what's the parallel in our time? What, mm. Where do we have similar kind of challenges? And what's the Word of God for us today? And we need to read Revelation the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, if we don't understand Revelation first in its first century context, if we don't have some understanding of that, we can make the book of Revelation say anything we want. Right, right. It's just wide open to our imagination. Mm -hmm. Rather than having us look for the parallels of where does empire today, mm -hmm. uh, where does idolatry today, on some level, run parallel to what was happening in first century Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. You'd mentioned a few times understanding the background and the culture of what was happening at the time that John wrote the Revelation. And you have a fantastic book called Apocalypse and Allegiance, Worship, Politics, and Devotion in the Book of Revelation. I remember reading this book years ago, and it was so helpful to me just to pull back the things that I just, I didn't know I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's interesting too, because you're not necessarily exegeting the text all the time. Sometimes you're just going through the background information. And, and if you're familiar enough with the text of Revelation, you could read the book. And while you're talking about something culturally that's happening, it just automatically makes things click. Uh, and so for, for me, it's, it's so appreciate. I was appreciative and I, I encourage our readers or our listeners if you want to study, you know, this is a book that's very helpful and Rob will uh, link it in our show notes, but yeah. you have a chapter on uh, the throne room scene. So this is what happens in four and five, you know, Rob and I, we've been hanging out here a little bit. And so you have this great th throne room scene and you even do some stuff in the book where you're, you're pulling back some of the cultural things that would have, uh, when John's audience would have heard 
chapters four and five, they would have immediately gone to some of these cultural things. What are some of the significant things that you think are, you know, notable to point out to help us understand the book and would have, you know, John's audience would have uh, really got pinged their ears on? One of my little hobbies on the side over the years has been collecting Roman coins. Mm. But I collect images. This is the poor man's coin collection <laughs> version. Very good. And I recommend it to anyone who's interested in the first century context. You can quickly find coin auctions, ancient coin auctions online, and you can get beautiful images of Roman coins. You actually, on your book, you actually have a couple uh, images of coins right on there. Yeah. I was doing it already back then, but I have on, on my computer hundreds, maybe by now thousands of images of coins. Hmm. And so I'm really interested in the iconography, the imagery that's on the coins. And I was really excited at one point to find a Domitian coin. Domitian would have been on the throne from AD 81 to 96, probably the time of Revelation. And on the reverse of the coin, of a Domitian coin, is an image of a throne with a lightning bolt above it. Mm. And I looked at that and I thought, that's straight out of the book of Revelation. Right, that's right. Revelation mm -hmm. chapter 4. Mm -hmm. Right. And what I see in Revelation is frequent appropriation, or might I say reappropriation, of imagery, iconography. By iconography, I don't mean just pictures of saints. I mean symbols. Uh, so you have lightning, and you have uh, a throne, uh, and you'll have people bowing down to the ground, and you'll have somebody with um, light emanating from his head. That's the image of Christ in chapter 1. And what I rec uh, came to see is that John is using to describe spiritual realities of who Jesus is, who God is, what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, John is using iconography that would have been familiar mm. to people living in the Roman world. Mm. And he's saying, this kind of allegiance and adulation, which in John's view has tilted over into blasphemy, into idolatry, that kind of allegiance, which all of those symbols elicit from the people of the Roman Empire, that kind of allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ. Mm. And one of the phenomenal things of the whole throne room vision is that John sees a throne with what is obviously God on it. He never describes God directly. God is dazzling light, and he's right. John is a good Jew. You can't describe God. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in front of the throne is something he can see, mm -hmm. and that's a lamb. Uh, and it's a little lamb, a little lambkin with marks of having been slain. Mm. Now, in the right hand of the one seated on the throne is a scroll, and John weeps because no one can open it. No right. one can reveal its contents. And John weeps because, as we realize later in the book, when that scroll finally gets opened, what happens is the sequence of events of the end times. So we learn later in the book that 
that that's what the scroll contains. It's it's God's plan, or you might say God's foreknowledge, maybe is a better way of saying it, God's foreknowledge of the way history is going to end. And no one is worthy to open the scroll. And then he hears, John hears an elder say, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah is able to open that scroll. And he looks up, and what does John see? That's when he sees the lamb. So the lamb, the lion is a lamb. As someone committed to nonviolence myself, that's a pretty powerful image, right. that juxtaposition. And it teaches us something fundamental, I believe, about how John intended his readers and listeners in the first century to respond to an oppressive, evil government, and should teach us something about how we respond today. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind-the-scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. One of the things that you note in your book, you cite David Barr, who's one of my favorite scholars in the book of Revelation, by the way. And he says, quote, symbols allow us to express what cannot be expressed in ordinary words. Can you elaborate on this a little bit, the, the role of symbols and how it affects the reader and, under, and understanding the text? Oh, boy. Let me take a, a Mennonite or Anabaptist view of the Eucharist, which would be similar to particularly more Protestant perspectives. We take the bread and the cup, and we say, this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. It's, in my understanding, it's not literally that. It, it, nothing changes in the chemistry. But in the process of taking that in, it opens my spiritual imagination, my spiritual sensibility to another realm of the grace of God that is beyond these mere physical symbols. You might say a, a wedding ring does something similar. It's, it's just a ring. I mean, why is that important? Well, on some level, I can't even quite express. This is always on my finger, and it, it's a reminder that I am faithful to a woman I love. Symbols have, can have powerful, evocative force to reach into our conscious and our subconscious on ways we don't even maybe quite recognize. And so I would say flags do that, uh, or the kind of symbols that, that uh, get kicked around a lot in political campaigns or associated with nationalism. And I don't mean to suggest that all of these are evil. Far from it. They're, sometimes they can have very positive associations. But we need to recognize that Revelation is not a book mostly to be read on the literal level. Mm -hmm. It's mostly a book to be read on the symbolic level. 
So I say it is true. It is God's word for me and for the church, uh, but not literal. Or if it were, Jesus would be a sheep. We discover when we get to heaven, Jesus is a sheep. And the dragon, and Satan's a seven-headed dragon, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, my mentor used to say it this way. He says, the imagery in Revelation affects the emotions. And he used to say that the best interpreters of the book of Revelation are children because they get it. They go, dragon bad, woman good, dragon chasing woman bad, right? I hope she gets away, right? And we like, okay, well, the seven heads represent, you know, right? And, and we start trying to figure it out and dissect. Hey, I got a question about symbols real quick. And because you mentioned you, you go through, and I think that was the first time I ever, in your book, uh, when I was reading it, thinking of the concept of symbols and really actually even trying to draw a modern day application. So one thing that's come up uh, in many churches, I'm assuming uh, placing a national flag inside of a, a church building is not an issue in the Mennonite <laughs> culture. Um, I'm, I'm Reformed Baptist. So in Baptist, American Baptist tradition, you're going to have a number of churches who are going to uh, display an American flag and then maybe a Christian flag. And so that, like even my church had that for years. Um, we've gone away from that, but this still becomes an issue that just people who have have grown up in a post-World War II American church culture, they just assume that your American flag ought to be on stage. Uh, you know, when you're looking from the congregation to the left of the pulpit, and there's something wrong if you don't have that. And I think for a lot of people, there's just a sense of pride and maybe like a good, healthy patriotism. But for a lot of people, you use the word nationalism. It, it definitely goes that far. But just from a symbolic perspective, what are we saying, even if we might not know we're saying it, when we do something like display a flag in, in the midst of our worship service, when we're gathering on the Lord's Day, what are we communicating directly or indirectly? Yeah, what you're getting at, Vinny, is bigger than just the flag issue. There's other ways that we, you know, get aligned with uh, the state or with wider culture. I should add here that there is a variety of Mennonites, and there are Mennonite churches with flags. Interesting. Uh, in, okay. In the sanctuary, uh, I've never been part of a church congregation that that did that. And were that to happen, I I would speak up. Mm -hmm. um, I love my country. And I I was born here, and I love to travel in the United States and love the people and the cultural diversity and what is often the generous spirit of the American people around the world. I, I am in, on some level proud to be uh, American, uh, but uh, I don't display the flag uh, even personally, in part because of my international travel uh, for the people of parts of Latin America, uh, parts of Africa, parts of Asia, parts of Middle East, uh, the American flag symbolizes aggression of an empire. Hmm. Uh, I was interested mm -hmm. this morning, today, to hear in the news that one of the generals who killed Victor Jara in 1973 in Chile uh, has committed suicide mm. uh, yesterday. And Victor Hara was a troubadour in sort of the Bob Dylan style, nonviolent. Uh, and he was caught up in the 1973 military coup. That is, he was he was targeted by that military coup uh, and was assassinated, was was killed. 
And the general who pulled the trigger was convicted. And yesterday they went to arrest him at age 86, mm. 50 years later. And when the police got there, he took his, took his own life. Uh, it, uh, it's a tragedy all, all around. But my point is that killing of Victor Hara was done by indigenous leaders in Chile who were supported by the United States. Right. So, so you can't quite say United States did it, but there's a, there's a hierarchy, a chain of command that went down from mm -hmm. Washington to uh, Victor, killing Victor Hara. There's definitely and an there's indirect uh, causation there. Too many examples of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, Pray for the country uh, and seek the well-being of the place where God has placed me, like uh, Jeremiah 29 says. Mm -hmm. yep. um, but I really want to have my allegiance clearly in the New Jerusalem, in the reign of God, in the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. and and function out of that as my identity, not some nation or national symbol. Yeah. Uh, going into Revelation, then we haven't gotten to chapter thirteen yet, so we haven't talked about the beasts. You know, we have these two beasts that pop up, and without getting completely into that chapter, there we we definitely see an aspect of allegiance. You have one beast that seems to be more of representing a religious side of things. You have another beast that seems to be representing maybe a political, military side of things. Uh, could you give us maybe just an intro or an overview of of the beasts and the the concept of allegiance that happens there, and maybe what John would want his audience to to understand by seeing those images? Yes, sometimes when I'm teaching Revelation, I actually start with chapter thirteen. Oh, wow, brave! Because <laughs> I have the sense that if you can understand chapter thirteen in its political social, religious context. If you understand that, a whole lot else in the book makes sense. Mm, that's, that's um, true. And yeah. so there's actually three three beasts in chapter 13, or you might have to start at the end of chapter 12, mm -hmm. chapter 12, verse 18. The dragon took his stand on the sand. Uh, the dragon is identified in chapter 12 very clearly as Satan. Mm -hmm. There's no mm -hmm. confusing that this is Satan. And then John in chapters 13, verses 1 through 10, describes what I would call the first beast. He sees a beast rising out of the sea. It's important to recognize that John is deeply immersed in the Hebrew scriptures. Mm -hmm. He knows what we call the Old Testament from start to finish. He alludes to it some 400 times. Mm -hmm. He doesn't quote it. He, he makes allusions. But what John uh, appears to be doing is using the imagery from Daniel chapter 7, mm -hmm. where Daniel sees a series of beasts, you know, one like a bear, one like a lion, uh, one like a leopard, I believe, and then a fourth mm -hmm. beast. As you read the rest of the book of Daniel, you see that these beasts in Daniel 7 apparently represent the Persian Empire, Babylonian Empire, the uh, Greek Empire. Yeah, the series, series of empires. And Daniel's not the only 
apocalyptic Jewish writer to do that. There's a whole library of apocalyptic books, Jewish apocalyptic books, and then later Christian books that did not make it into our biblical canon. Some of them I'm very glad didn't make it in. Uh, they aren't all great literature. But these apocalyptic books describe empires as beasts. So when we see John using that imagery here, we should immediately think, well, what's the empire he's describing here? And the whole book of Revelation seems to reflect the imperial presence of Rome, and mm -hmm. especially its emperor cult. So John sees in uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 13 that people worship the beasts. Mm -hmm. They make an image of the beast. Uh, and John then, in verse 10 of chapter 13, gives what I think is an important pastoral instruction. Mm -hmm. He says, if you are to be taken captive, into captivity you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Mm -hmm. In other words, I see him calling on Christians in responding to this blasphemous Roman Empire not to take up the sword like Peter did in Gethsemane, uh, but to follow the instruction of Jesus, put that sword away. And then there's a second beast, the second half of Revelation 13, that has two horns like the lamb, but it speaks like the dragon. And this beast appears to be a representation of the whole structure of emperor worship, the, the temples of emperor worship, the rituals of emperor worship, the, the uh, choral societies, cities throughout the Roman Empire established choral societies to sing praises to the divine emperor. Uh, so this that whole structure seems to be represented by uh, a second beast, which then has people of the earth put a mark on their forehead and on their hands, and that's uh, number 666. So, Nelson, you brought it up. So, 666, uh, you believe in your, in your book, indicates Nero. I would cer certainly agree with you. I think most scholars would agree with you on that. But you contend that the meaning is not limited to Nero. And what do you mean by this? 666 was a cipher uh, that would have been easily recognizable by uh, people who knew Greek and Hebrew in the first century. Each letter of the Greek and Hebrew alphabet uh, could be a stand-in for a number, number one, number two, number three, number four. And so you could add up the numerical value of any name and um, or any word and uh, assign that number. And the name Nero Caesar in Hebrew seems to add it up to 666. And I mean, I, I guess I would say John likely was pointing to Nero, the, the, the emperor who reigned from 54 to 68 in the first mm -hmm. century, the emperor who would have been responsible, I believe, and historians believe, for the death of Peter, St. Peter, and St. Paul, mm -hmm. the first emperor who persecuted Christians, uh, an emperor who, who literally went insane and was declared insane by the Roman Senate, 
because of his cruelty and uh, uh, strange and uh, terrible behavior. Um, so even though John, I believe, was pointing to Nero with that cipher of 666, we should read that number, I believe, just like we would read other symbols in the book and say, what is the parallel today? Right. And I don't mean to suggest, Rob, that sometime we're going to actually literally have pressure to tattoo a 666 on our exactly. hands. Or, right, right. Uh, there will be other ways that we will be expected to show our allegiance to forces of evil. It might be an empire that's derailed. It might be economic or social forces that are malevolent. Uh, and there will be pressure to show the iconography, say, yeah, I belong with this. I, uh, I identify with this in the little subtle ways that show I, I'm with the program. I would actually, if I can push back just a little bit, I would actually say that's a present tense statement, not just a future statement. I don't, I don't think it's something that we will have to do or potentially, I think it's something that we are confronted with now. Would you agree with that? Or what do you think of that? Yes. I mean, I would, tr I'm trying to think how we would do that. I mean, we're in the midst of a emerging presidential campaign <laughs> and yeah. uh, I think political parties, plural, try to get their followers <laughs> to show the symbols that I'm with the program. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to suggest that politics is evil, intrinsically evil, or that any political symbols are evil. I wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. But they can tilt over into racism and bigotry, mm -hmm. dog whistle stuff, that Christians are really susceptible to and mm -hmm. i and i think tragically i would say tragically as counting myself as, a, as an evangelical christian parts of the evangelical christian movement get caught up in a kind of political loyalty that mm -hmm. seems morally suspect at the least yeah 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 uh, this that'll be another whole podcast we'll have you back on to discuss that one later <laughs> on when we get through more of the book of revelation yeah. And that would be relevant uh, in about a year from now when we're actually in the swing of the presidential uh, campaigns when, oh, yeah, yeah. when when we all lose our uh, or lose our heads, uh, you know, oh, socially. It might be in the next six months. I think it's already. Let's yeah, talk. Right. Let's yeah, talk. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, with this to, to kind of just keep going with the thought and the contextualization of you know, how, how would he, how we would apply these things. I think one of the struggles I've definitely found this as a Bible teacher in a local church, you look back at, biblical text and warnings of idolatry, which is, I mean, that's going to be the major sin of the Old Testament people of God. It's the warning of the New Testament people of God. It's like, stop worshiping other things. And when you're reading the the scriptures, though, especially in the ancient world, it's very common to have a an image, an icon, the thing itself that they're going after. And in our modern times, we don't knowingly have those things that we deliberately go to worship. And so I think, uh, in challenging myself, starting with using I statements, and then even with our own, my own congregation, it's, it's saying, hey, what are the things that we need to be aware of that we worship uh, when we're not going specifically to a temple to bow down before something? And, and this is, always becomes a thing. So going on what you were just talking about a second ago, Nelson, what, what might be those things 
that might not be inherently bad, but can become idolatry? What, what, what would be the warning that John might use if he was writing to the churches in, you know, I, I'm in the Bay Area, Rob's in Arizona, you're, I don't know if you're still in Pennsylvania, but, uh, you know, like, what, what would be the warnings of the type of images that we might be, uh, you know, just tempted to worship? Good question, Vinny. Can I get a little edgy? <laughs> yes, no, please no. do. Please keep it PG <laughs> and under. <laughs> that, that's fine. Yeah, PG and under, but edgy is edgy's all the better. Edgy's good. There you go. We're reading a prophetic text here, so let's yeah. go. Uh, no, this will get me in trouble. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. No, this will get me in trouble. That's fine. I just came back from a uh, better part of a year in the West Bank of Palestine, uh, living at Bethlehem, the uh, city of David, the city where Jesus was born, uh, and working with, living with uh, Palestinian people. And one of the tragedies I see of the modern Christian church mm. is the way a significant portion of the Western Christian church, and elsewhere in the world, I should say, gives uncritical support to the nation of Israel. Mm. And uh, the nation of Israel was not founded by religious people. It was, it was founded by, the, I mean, particularly the early leaders of it were, were socialists and uh, communitarian people with a secular vision of reestablishing their state. Uh, and I have often felt love for Israel because it's the place where the Bible happened. You know, it, mm -hmm. there's, I'd love to visit it there. I'm going to be there in another two weeks. I, mm -hmm. I love to go back and, and don't want to uh, see any ill come to Israel. But just just way, to clarify, when you talk about the establishment, are you talking about 1948? 1948. Okay, yes. Okay. Right. Uh, and so that happens right on the 1948 establishment of Israel as a, as a modern state, happens right on the cusp of a whole bunch of empire stuff happening the ottoman mm -hmm. empire and then the, the world war one and world war two and the the british empire uh and then this state is established and i'm so grateful israel can have a state that jewish people can have a state you know what what happened to them for two thousand years is just mm -hmm. beyond comprehending in terms of suffering and and wrong done to the jewish people but what I saw uh, living in, in Palestine was the wrong that Israel does today to Palestinian people. Mm. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'm not going to go into details here, but I talked personally with people who were tortured, uh, who, who were humiliated, uh, who had their houses destroyed, Palestinian people, and Christians of the Western world generally either don't know or ignore what's happening to Palestinian people. And it's among Palestinians that the, the Christians today live. There are some Jewish Christians, Messianic Christians. But I just see that kind of uncritical support of that policy of Israel. I'm not talking about general support for Israel. I'm talking about support for 
the kind of Zionism that allows uh, uh, people in Israel to say, we're just going to move into the West Bank and we're going to build towns, uh, 120 towns on Palestinian land. We're going to destroy houses. We're going to uh, make the Palestinians second-class people and humiliate them uh, whenever they cross the border or do anything we don't like. Uh, that's simply wrong, and and I think that's an example of um, Christians getting caught up in a kind of um, imperial mentality mm -hmm. that has derailed uh, and moved away from God's intention for what governments should be doing. Can I just ask to clarify, yeah. and I don't, I don't want to oversimplify what you just said, but would you say then— and, and, this might not be the right options, but would you say Zionism can be idolatrous or would you say Zionism is idolatrous or would, yeah. is that just too simplistic? Again, that's clear. are you saying Christian Zionism? Christian Zionism, yes. Okay, yeah. right. Well, there's Jewish Zionism right. and there's Christian yes, Zionism. Yeah. There are more Christian Zionists in the world than there are Jewish Zionists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I would say absolutely Zionism can be a beautiful and good thing. Okay. Uh, if it if that if that means uh, here's the if if that means recovery of the Hebrew language, recovery of a culture, um, a place of freedom and safety for the mm -hmm. Jewish people, mm -hmm. uh, a place to live in their historic homeland going mm -hmm. back two thousand years and beyond. If that's what you mean, uh, I uh, have nothing against Zionism, just like I want to be patriotic in this country and love the United States and love, love the culture and the people here. It's when Zionism becomes the license for appropriating land mm -hmm. that the global, global community, United Nations, global community has said, this belongs to Palestinians. Then I say, that's Zionism that's run amok and becomes, in my estimation, immoral. I love the nuance in that. I appreciate that answer. Yeah, that's really good. There's an interesting thing there that what, what you talked about, Nelson. And by the way, just for those of you listening, Nelson and I are going to be uh, co-hosting a webinar on the theology, end times, and the impact in Israel-Palestine Israel October 5th. We'll get more information out uh, to you then. and be. Uh, but you can go to Nimi dot network n-e-m-e.network not now but in a few weeks and you can find a way to register for that and the time and, and place for all that there's there's a couple of things that i like to add to that and then kind of get your thought on this and that is one is we did the same thing in the united states in the, in America, the founding of america we had this ideology that we're god's chosen people and then this is the new promised land mm -hmm. and the in, indigenous peoples the native americans were the canaanites and we needed to expel them and they were savages and we kind of justified it theologically that way. Unfortunately, some people who hold to a Christian Zionist, and not all do, not, not all Christian Zionists believe this, but have the same kind of mentality when it comes to the land of Israel. That this is the land that God gave the, to the Jewish people, going back to Abraham, it's their land. And the Palestinians are the savages who are the Canaanites who need to be eradicated from the land. And that theological convictions then have allowed us to justify radical injustices. And I think you, I can see you nodding your head a little bit and affirming that. And that's the same thing. And, and that's one of the things that we want to bring aware of is how much our theology impacts our ethics. And when our ethics are unfounded, just go back to the issues of slavery, for example. 
We know our ethics are bad. Slavery is morally reprehensible. Yet what do we do? We said, oh, but Paul says theology, slavery is okay. And we found ways to justify it. I think the same kind of situation is going on here then, right? We have this end times theology of this is going to be the end of the world in Armageddon. And we have this understanding of the covenants that God made with Abraham, the land belongs to them. One of the things I heard you say and point out was the Palestinians aren't savages, for one. And they're not, and some of them are, I mean, you stayed at Bethlehem Bible College. You know, they're Christians. And that was the first thing, and we'll talk about this on our, on our webinar, that struck me. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There are Christians here. And a lot of them, I mean, you don't have a Bible college for evangelical Christians, unless you have a lot of evangelical Christians in the land, let alone other Christians too. Yeah. I would say Christians are a small minority they, they are. in Palestine, they are. but correct. a significant yeah. and courageous minority yes, yes, yes. that uh, is beleaguered uh, by the political situation to the extent that some people fear that Christianity will literally disappear from Palestine and from the Middle East because, well, in part, I believe, because of the support that Christians in the West give to Israel mm. so discredits Christians in the Middle East that might be difficult for them to survive. And I think someone who just, a Christian who justifies what's happening in the West Bank needs to go back and read the book of Galatians again, mm. you know, and, and see that the, the vision of a people of God that's not limited to Jewish people with a special blessing. You know, the Jewish people carried a fabulous role in salvation mm -hmm. history. Uh, and Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, came out of that, and that's where we give our, our allegiance, mm -hmm. not to the book of Joshua, important as that is for our understanding, you know, the salvation history, but to, you know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I had already mentioned uh, your book, Apocalypse and Allegiance. Once once again, it will be uh, linked in the show notes. Yeah, but, it's excellent. Uh, it was written in a, it was published at least in around 2010, so not sure when you wrote it, but why, you know, what encouraged you to write that, what motivated you, and uh, what do you want to see people take away from that? Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, my 10th grade students in uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, at a Christian high school there, dared me to teach that book. Um, and uh, I am historian by instinct. I love to read history. And when I discovered that you can understand this book by reading alongside it the history of the Roman Empire mm. and uh, social and uh, the political history of the first century Roman world, I was just thrilled. It, it just brought this all together. Vinny, I want people to read this book, and I pray that people, uh, if people read this book, they will, in the end, deeply want their own citizenship to be in the New Jerusalem, mm. which John sees at the end of his book, chapters 21 and 22, John says, I saw the new Jerusalem, and it is coming down, present mm -hmm. active participle. I mm -hmm. saw it. It's coming. Here it is. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth Amen. as it is in heaven. And the imagery of this city describes, I believe, what God wants the church to be. Mm. That is, the New Jerusalem has walls. There are boundaries beyond which the church does not go. There, there are walls. And the gates are always open. 
It's not exclusive. We're not fencing people out. The doors are open. You can come in. And if you choose to come into this space, which is enormous, you take a map of the of the New Jerusalem, as John describes it, superimpose it on the Roman Empire. It covers everything from Jerusalem to Rome. It's you know, it's an enormous city. Again, this is symbolic, not literal, mm-hmm. but the symbolism is that what is at the center of the church and the mission of the church? It's Jesus the Lamb and God. And Worship is our primary activity, <laughs> not that we spend all of our time on our knees, but our whole lives are response of worship and allegiance to God and uh, to the Lamb. Mm. And everything is shared equally in this city. The gold is so plentiful that you can walk on it. It's on the streets. You just, mm-hmm. just walk right. It, there's nobody poor. And it's a place of healing. And out from out of the city goes the river of the water of life, which gives water to the tree of life. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. You know, God wants to restore this world, redeem this world, not blow it up. Doesn't want us to blow it up. God wants to restore. And that's the mission of the church to be part of that healing, mm-hmm. uh, calling people to know Jesus and to um, take care of this beautiful creation God made. What I just heard you saying, and I want to make sure that we bring this up and highlight it, is that the new Jerusalem is not just something future. It's, in other words, we're living in accordance with the, I like saying the kingdom of God, but I think it's the same idea as what you're presenting, but it's something that's relevant in the present tense. Glory of God dwells in the new Jerusalem. And of course, the glory of God dwells through the spirit in our hearts today, right? And so that we as kingdom people need to be living with an allegiance, if I can use the term from your book, to Christ as Lord and not to the nations as Lord. One of the things that you do really well in your book is each of the chapters, you have like a little thing at the end of it that there's a lot of modern stories and contemporary applications. And I really encourage the, the listeners to get a copy of this book and just grapple with the contemporary conflicts and contemporary situations that you present in there. I think you do a phenomenal job with that. So mm-hmm. uh, thank you so much for your contribution there. Thank you for that, Rob. And I agree with you about the present tense. Yeah. I would just add the note that I certainly don't believe, and I doubt you believe that the kingdom is here in its fullness. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. It, it's coming. Yep. It's, and so in a kind of preliminary way, yeah. We experience that in the Christian community. Yeah. I feel it with you guys I've never met before. I sense we are brothers in Christ, and we're, we're part of a family of faith. And so that's part of the beauty of this kingdom, that it, it, it goes around the world. But please, God, bring it on. Thy Amen. kingdom come, thy will be done. On come, earth. O Lord. Come, yeah. O Lord. How long? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Could I, I read? Um, a few lines spoken by Archbishop Oscar Romero, okay. who was assassinated in 1980 uh, in um, El Salvador. And I stopped by El, El Salvador a while back and went to that chapel to pray and to be at this place where he died. Hmm. And just before he died, uh, Oscar Romero said, God's reign is already present on our earth in mystery. 
When the Lord comes, it will be brought to perfection. That is the hope that inspires Christians. Mm -hmm. And shortly after you spoke those words, a, a assassin's bullet came into the chapel and and took him down. Uh, he was a martyr of empire, uh, mm -hmm. and he was a martyr of Jesus Christ, who stood up for nonviolence and for allegiance to the kingdom of God. It's funny when we have guests on, because we already have a Baptist and a Presbyterian here. So now it's like a joke, you know, so you have a, a Baptist, Presbyterian, and Mennonite walk into a bar. Uh, <laughs> but um it, no, because the Baptist didn't go in. And the Baptist couldn't go in. Yes. <laughs> so that's always the joke. Uh, coming from a Mennonite tradition, which, in you know, I'm, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. We actually don't have a large Mennonite uh, population in my area. So I think this is one of those um, religious denomination, Christian denominations that we're just very unfamiliar with. And so like, like we always do with everything in life that we're unfamiliar with, it's just weird and different and they're different than us. And especially in, in the Baptist tradition, that tends to be very welcoming of political involvement. Um, it's almost like it's a duty. And if you're not involved, then you're sinning, you know, it, like those sort of expectations could wrongly be placed on American Christians in, in my tradition. My question to you would be, you know, if, if we were sitting breaking bread with, with you and folks from my congregation who just might not be aware of any other type of thought, of the spectrum of Christian involvement in, in politics. How might you challenge, knowing that the Baptist is probably going to stay the Baptist, but what are the ways that you would challenge your brother and sister in terms of just ways they might think differently hmm. uh, about the perspective you come from and why you have the convictions you do as a Mennonite and, and how that relates to your involvement in, in the political realm? To beloved sisters and brothers in the Baptist church, uh, I would say your movement, the Baptist movement, grew out of the Mennonite movement. Yeah, it did. That's right. It has its roots back there. Uh, and I would say go back to the sources of your own Baptist movement. Uh, and it was a desire then, just like the early Mennonites, or they were called also called Anabaptists, mm -hmm. to take Jesus seriously, to not just get various layers or iterations of theology that grew over centuries off of Jesus. Go back to Jesus. Amen. Uh, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to the Gospels. Go back to the New Testament. And don't chuck the Old Testament, but think twice about taking your ethics off of the Old Testament mm. if the teaching of Jesus says but I say unto you, mm -hmm. you have heard, but I say, when Jesus says that, we should pay attention. And Jesus is changing things up a bit. Uh, and uh, basic message is follow the lamb and worship the lamb. That's good. Amen. I should write a book like with that title. Yeah, that's, that's a good, good title. Idea. You should. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. I would also say, though, Nelson, would you also include your Presbyterian friends to stop baptizing their babies? <laughs> see the baptist yeah. and mennonite can get now, up you know the, i'm uh, going to edit everything out of this podcast <laughs> so you can say anything you want right now it doesn't matter. i studied for seven years on <laughs> Presbyterian campuses you went to princeton, went to princeton. <laughs> you, yeah and Union Bus yeah so come on Vinny. Yeah. sorry just I, I i wanted I, to create unity in the venn diagram you and your this, whole uh, household shall be baptized i mean it's act 16 right here come on <laughs> i love the presbyterian environment i i flourished in that academic environment. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, hey, anything you want to add before we go? 
Thank you both for taking the book of Revelation seriously. Amen. It has a message for us and for the church today. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having you. It's wonderful. And again, we'll put the uh, links to your book. So, and Nelson, I look forward to being with you on October 10th. I think I said it October 5th earlier in the episode, but I believe it's going to be October 10th, Tuesday, October 10th, that we'll be doing a webinar on the theology of the end times and its impact on Israel, Palestine. And I'm looking forward to being with you there. You can get the links for that once it goes live on the show notes, or uh, we'll put it in other episodes. And it'll be on nemi.network, N-E-M-E.network, where you can register for that. And if you're not able to attend the webinar live, if you sign up for the webinar, you'll get a link to it when it's done, when it's finished done. So the recording will be made available to you. And uh, thank you. I'm looking forward to being with you again in a few weeks on that, Nelson. So thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Nelson. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast and we would love for you to share the work of determined truth with others please follow this podcast and give a review on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people